Happy December, everyone! It's the end of 2022, and we are closing out this year with the second edition of History for the Holidays, where we share some historical bits and pieces with you about the holiday season in times gone by. We hope you enjoy them. Hey everyone, Christine here with my contribution to our second annual History for the Holidays episode. I can't believe we have completed yet another year of footnoting history, and I'd like to thank every single listener, and especially our amazing patrons, because without you, we wouldn't still be here. And indeed, we truly are still here. In February, we will be celebrating an entire decade of this podcast. And that's just, that's a lot of history. I think I can speak for our whole crew when I say, thank you for being here with us. It means the world. But you're not here for sentimentality today. You're here for some history with a holiday twist. And I've got that for you. I'm branching out from my usual use of newspapers for my sources. So I guess you can teach an old dog new tricks. I did two episodes this year that revolved around the life and creations of English author A.A. Milne, one about his most famous character, Winnie the Pooh, and one about his life and the lives of his wife and son. When I was reading his works as part of my research, I came across a poem that I thought was perfect for this episode. It's called King John's Christmas. And yes, it's about that King John. The King John, who was the youngest son of King Henry II of England and his queen, Alnor of Aquitaine, and who ruled from 1199 to 1216. Although you'll find the occasional John apologist nowadays, he is still widely regarded as one of England's worst kings and is most famous for signing the Magna Carta, or, to our regular listeners, for loving his dogs. In this poem, Milne uses a tongue-in-cheek tone and plenty of amusing anachronisms to show us that even bad King John really hoped to find presents on Christmas morning. If that isn't perfect for this episode, I don't know what is. So, without further chatter, I present to you King John's Christmas, as it appeared in Milne's 1927 book, Now We Are Six. King John was not a good man. He had his little ways, and sometimes no one spoke to him for days and days and days. And men who came across him when walking in the town, gave him a supercilious stare, or passed with noses in the air, and bad King John stood dumbly there, blushing beneath his crown. King John was not a good man, and no good friends had he. He stayed in every afternoon, but no one came to tea. And round about December, the cards upon his shelf, which wished him lots of Christmas cheer and fortune in the coming year, were never from his near and dear, but only from himself. King John was not a good man, yet had his hopes and fears. They'd given him no present now for years and years and years. But every year at Christmas, while minstrels stood about, collecting tribute from the young for all the songs they might have sung, he stole away upstairs and hung a hopeful stocking out. King John was not a good man. He lived his life aloof. Alone he thought a message out while climbing up the roof. He wrote it down and propped it against the chimney stack. To all and sundry, near and far, F. Christmas in particular, and signed it not Johannes R., but very humbly, Jack. I want some crackers and I want some candy. I think a box of chocolates would come in handy. I don't mind oranges. I do like nuts. And I should like a pocket knife that really cuts. 
And oh, Father Christmas, if you love me at all, bring me a big red India rubber ball. King John was not a good man. He wrote this message out and got him to his room again, descending by the spout. And all that night he lay there, a prey to hopes and fears. I think that's him a-coming now, anxiety bedewed his brow. He'll bring one present anyhow, the first I've had in years. Forget about the crackers and forget about the candy. I'm sure a box of chocolates would never come in handy. I don't like oranges. I don't want nuts. And I have got a pocket knife that almost cuts. But oh, Father Christmas, if you love me at all, bring me a big red India rubber ball. King John was not a good man. Next morning when the sun rose up to tell a waiting world that Christmas had begun, and people seized their stockings and opened them with glee, and crackers, toys, and games appeared, and lips with sticky sweets were smeared, King John said grimly, as I feared, nothing again for me. I did want crackers, and I did want candy. I know a box of chocolates would come in handy. I do love oranges. I did want nuts. I haven't got a pocket knife, not one that cuts. And oh, if Father Christmas had loved me at all, he would have brought a big red India rubber ball. King John stood by the window and frowned to see below the happy bands of boys and girls all playing in the snow. A while he stood there watching and envying them all. When through the window big and red, there hurtled by his royal head and bounced and fell upon the bed an India rubber ball. And, oh, Father Christmas, my blessings on you fall for bringing him a big red India rubber ball. Thank you again for joining us. I wish you a very happy holiday season and beginning of the new year. May you get all your heart desires, but preferably without being like bad King John and having one of your subjects throw it at your head. Happy holidays. What's up, foot neuters? It's Josh. And I'm going to tell you a little about winter solstice at Stonehenge for this holiday episode. Stonehenge is perhaps one of the best known prehistoric stone circle monuments in Europe and is today found on the Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire, England. I hope I said that okay. Let us know, English folks. Archaeologists date the earliest activity at the site to the Mesolithic period, sometime between 8500 and 7000 BCE. Sometime around 2500 BCE, the stone circles that are so emblematic of Stonehenge were erected, but the site was part of a larger complex that included nearby sites of habitation. There was also an earthenwork avenue that connected the monument to the River Avon. At this time, much of England was covered in woodlands, but the area that became known as Stonehenge was an open plain, which probably had a lot to do with its appeal. Now, we don't actually know the entirety of the appeal of Stonehenge or really many details about the different ways in which the site was used. Some of the larger stones were decorated with carvings of axes and daggers that most archaeologists interpret as statements of power or status. Early on, before the stones were set, some of the man-made ditches surrounding the site were used for burials, and archaeologists estimate that there could have been up to about 150 people buried there. Later, around 2400 BCE, 
people started building barrows nearby that were also burial sites. Barrows are like these round concentric mounds, and these were built on small hills that could be seen from Stonehenge. People continued to visit the site in the Romano-British period, and medieval people were definitely aware of it. The earliest written references to the site actually come from the 14th century, and a lot of medieval people like to contemplate Arthur's Merlin as the architect, which, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Why not? One of the things that many people have noticed is that Stonehenge was meant to be a type of solar calendar. The Sarsen Circle, which is probably the thing that you imagine when you hear the word Stonehenge, supports this theory. There are 30 upright sarsens, 17 of which are still standing in their original positions. Seven have fallen, and six are just missing. Six lintels, which are the horizontal blocks at the top, are still there too. But not all of those have stood the test of time. And medieval looters, they were a thing. Well, part of the Merlin Stonehenge lore, which is told in Geoffrey of Monmouth's 12th century text, History of the Kings of Britain, highly recommended, the text says that Merlin tore up stones in Ireland and used 15,000 men to move them to Stonehenge. Some archaeologists believe that many of the Stonehenge bluestones were lugged from an earlier stone circle site in Wales, called the Juan Mon, which my Welsh is terrible, so I probably said that completely wrong. Please forgive me. The Welsh flag is the coolest flag in the world. This Welsh site is 175 miles from the Salisbury Plain, and recent discoveries of quarries in Wales that show exact matches for the Stonehenge bluestones that seem to confirm this theory, even though, I mean, I'm partial to the Merlin one. In any event, the stone structures were the center of a ritual complex where the lunar calendar cycle was of the utmost importance. That earthenwork avenue to the River Avon and the northeast entrance to the circle is aligned to the sunset on the winter solstice, which of course is the shortest day of the year, and my half-birthday. Probably people did a lot of things to mark this moment. But one thing they definitely did at Stonehenge was barbecue. My people. Recent isotope studies done at Stonehenge reveal that ancient Britons got together for some pretty serious pig roasts that likely happened at these critical moments in the lunar calendar, like the winter solstice. There were hundreds of houses at nearby Durrington, and probably the builders that lived there, but there is also speculation that these were kind of like hostels for pilgrims who were visiting for important celebrations that included big feasts. Thousands of pig bone specimens have been found in Durham, and they were not locally raised, they were brought in by people from other areas of Britain, Wales, and Scotland. Archaeologists have also found many, and by many I mean possibly up to 300, two feet deep pits that they interpret as the remains of a giant structure. They only go so far as to say that this structure would have been massive 
and visible across the Salisbury Plain Stonehenge Monument, but I like to think of it as one big picnic If people were gathering for an important calendar celebration, why not have a barbecue? Sun sets around 4 p.m. in Salisbury on December 21st. But there's one critical question that remains to be answered, and we might need a time machine for this. And that question is, what barbecue sauce did they use? Is it from Carolina, Kansas City? Is it something completely undiscovered? A new barbecue sauce. What a happy winter solstice present that would be. Have a prosperous solstice, a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a joyous Kwanzaa, and any other holiday that you celebrate. I'm looking forward to the Saturnalia. Happy holidays, folks. Hello, footnoting history friends. It's Kristen here with some more Hanukkah history for you. Because the Jewish calendar is a solar lunar one, the dates of the holiday seem to change every year when you're following along with the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar of the secular and Christian worlds. But Hanukkah always starts on the 25th of Kislev, which in the Gregorian calendar is often in December, but sometimes also in November. As I am recording this, Hanukkah hasn't happened yet, but that doesn't matter. It was great. I can already tell you I had an awesome time. And it's a bit about the fried food and some about the chocolate and the presents. I forgot to mention the presents. It's also about the lights. And I thought some of you might be interested in the history behind lighting those Hanukkah lamps. I was. So the reason the Jews light a menorah at Hanukkah is in remembrance for a miracle that happened after a Maccabean victory over the Greeks in the 2nd century BCE. They needed to rededicate the temple in Jerusalem, and they had to light a ritual lamp to do that, but they only had enough oil for one night, but it lasted for eight nights. That was the first Hanukkah, but a lot of historians believe that the celebration essentially went dormant for about 100 years. And then when Rome settled into the area, people started to revive the observance. We do know that Jews were commemorating Hanukkah in the 1st and 2nd centuries CE, but we don't have a lot of detail. Many of the 19th century claims about lamps that were supposedly medieval are sometimes dubious and very often unsubstantiated, but we do know that medieval European Jews had Hanukkah menorahs and Sometimes we even get clues as to how they were used. If you were wondering in the 12th century how many Hanukkah lamps you should light, Moses Maimonides had you covered. If you cared what Moses Maimonides, aka the Great Eagle, had to say, which you might not since Judaism was not and is not a monolithic belief structure with one clear leader who was in charge of making all the rules, But the Sephardic Jewish philosopher, who was the physician of Saladin and a prolific writer and scholar in all matters religious and scientific, and who lived part of his life in Spain, had quite a few opinions as to how to light your Hanukkah lamps. Each house should light at least one. That was the answer. But of course, it's Maimonides, so the answer continues. Quote, a more zealous way of fulfilling the obligation to light Hanukkah lamps was to light one for each member of the household, man or woman, Maimonides said. And an even more zealous way to do things would be to light one for each person the first night, and then add one more lamp per person each night after that. So if there are 10 people living in the house, 
the first night, you light 10 lamps. And then on the second night, you light 20. By the time you get to the eighth night, you're lighting 80 lamps. And that's a lot of lamps. In the very next sentence, Maimonides says that the, quote, prevailing custom in Spain was to light one lamp per household on the first night and to add a lamp for each succeeding night, which is pretty much what a lot of people do today. Light one candle on the first night and just keep going down the line. Elsewhere later, one Italian manuscript from 1374 found in a text called The Decisions of Isaiah of Tranny the Younger shows a man in blue lighting a brass Hanukkah lamp with oil and eight wicks. But there are other medieval menorahs that are U-shaped, which is perhaps more familiar to us. Although a lot of these manuscript illustrations have only seven candles, the number of menorah candles has fluctuated over the years. A seven was kind of typical in the Maccabeans' time, but at one point, people were using nine. Maimonides does not describe how his Hanukkah lamps looked. He does, however, talk about how and when you should light them. He says you should only light these lamps at sunset, not before and not much after. If you forget, you can do it up until the time that, quote, people cease to walk in the streets, which is about a half an hour after sunset, according to his estimation. Once the lamp goes out, it goes out. And you can't light it again until you're at it again the next night, lighting the Hanukkah lamps. If you want to extinguish the lamp before you go to bed, that's fine. You can use any kind of oil or wick that you like. You cannot, according to Maimonides, be a, quote, deaf mute, an imbecile, a minor, or a heathen. That makes your lighting invalid. You also can't light the lamp inside and then take it outside and put it over your door. You have to light it where it's going to stand. If you have a house with two doors on different sides, you need a Hanukkah lamp for both of those doors. If you have two doors on the same side of your house, that's fine. You can have just one lamp because people will see that you have lit Hanukkah lights when they're looking at the house. What side of the door? Maimonides doesn't say, but one 13th century source from Lunel, France, said that you should put your Hanukkah light on the left side of the doorway, since the right is reserved for the mezuzah. Quote, In times of peril, Maimonides says, it is okay to put the Hanukkah lamp inside your house. It is okay to even put it on your table. A big part of me hates that he had to say this at all, but he did. The only rule Maimonides has about Hanukkah lamps inside the home is that they not be used for illumination. You have to have other sources of light because that's not the Hanukkah lamp's purpose. The commandment to light Hanukkah lamps, Maimonides writes, is a precious one, and Jews should be particularly careful to fulfill this commandment. However you do it, if you're doing it. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We'll be back in January with more new episodes for you. In the meantime, check out our extensive catalog of episodes on our YouTube channel, as well as our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to our shop page, as well as teaching resources. If you'd like to help us keep Footnoting History open access and would like to support the work we do, please consider donating through our Patreon and Ko-Fi links. We are so very appreciative of all our supporters. Happy holidays, everyone.